Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Sophie. Welcome to A TARDIS OF ONE'S OWN. A queer feminist journey through time and space and new who. So we're here because we were discussing Shuti Gutwa's casting announcement in the office because we both work together and we were lamenting that we lost touch with Doctor Who through the years and we wanted to get back into it. So before we get started with this podcast, I thought we could just talk about our own relationships with Doctor Who. Yeah, absolutely exciting. Yeah, so tell me about you. Um, so, tiny bit of my background. I'm, I'm Sophie, I've said that already. I'm originally from the UK, uh, but I have made New Zealand my home, and that's where we're recording. And I've been here for well over a decade. So I was a big fan of Doctor Who, like the modern Who, when it first came out. And I was like 16, 17. I watched all the seasons, like every week, super excited for the air, up until probably mid first season of Matt Smith. <laughs> and then. I just sometimes like miss the occasional episode. Our, our pasta vegged. <laughs> um, and yeah, and so have not watched anything since, literally, mm-hmm. in probably what's that, 10 years? Cool. So yeah, so when you suggested this, you were a brilliant idea. I was like, this is awesome. It's a really cool way for me to reconnect with that show that I really enjoyed as, you know, that kind of mid-teen years. Mm. And I've never re-watched any of those episodes, so I literally have forgotten the majority of stuff. Mm. So it's cool to like come to it fresh. And then this approach of, you know, that idea of looking at it through that queer and feminist lens, I was like, oh, that's a really cool way to approach it again. Mm. Because whilst I would definitely call myself a feminist age 16, that feminism journey, especially that queer journey, is something that was so not on my radar then Mm. to the extent that it is now in my, you know, early to mid 30s. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think that's a cool way to continue that journey Mm -hmm. and connect with the text and with that learning and with you and your thoughts and we have such interesting chats yeah we do in real life so <laughs> kitchen chats yeah absolutely <laughs> the kitchen chats it's an awesome opportunity to do this with you and i'm super excited cool similar to you actually you know i've always considered myself a feminist but mm-hmm. even just watching this first episode i was like okay well past jen had some things going on that she didn't realize she had going on because with the benefit of distance yeah My background is I grew up in South Africa and I spent my adolescence in Australia and I actually have no recollection of Doctor Who being a thing in my childhood at all. I only really became aware of it when I was, I think, second year of university and my friend Liz, who's hopefully listening to this, hi Liz, um, she was really into the tenant who... And I think she was watching the, the David Tennant's first series and then I went over to her house and we sort of watched the first season together with Christopher Eccleston mm-hmm. and then I would watch Doctor Who with her as it was going out throughout the years um, up until I basically left uni, which I think coincided with the end of David Tennant's mm-hmm. era of Who. And then I sort of kept in touch with it. Like I watched the Matt Smith episodes because I love Karen Gillan. I have sort of dipped in and out. Like I watched some of the Peter Capaldi ones and I've watched some of the Jodie Whittaker ones, but it's very sporadic. And like, I've never really been able to connect with it the same way you do when you're at university and you've just got all that time and you just have someone else to share it with. Like when you're on your own and you're traveling, it's harder to connect with media in the same way, I think. But tangentially, because I was watching Doctor Who with Liz, I got really into Torchwood as well. So I was like way more into Torchwood than I was into Doctor Who up until the point where, you know, they killed off Yanto and I was like, oh, I will never emotionally recover from this. And I don't actually think I have emotionally recovered from this. So in a way, that kind of soured my relationship with it as well. So I'm really just looking forward to revisiting it and like you, seeing how it ties into what my experience is now, but also to be aware of Doctor Who's kind of place in, in the history. And like it is quite queer and it has a strong relationship to counterculture and with marginalized people and how that reflects and how we can connect with that so yeah i'm excited to do this and Mm -hmm. to see what's happened because even though 2005 does not feel that long ago when you watch these things you're like wow you wouldn't get away with that now (laughs) dude some parts of this episode have not aged well Mm. i was like i was feeling the 17 years yeah yeah yeah. like and also billy piper looks so young i know and you don't notice that when you were also 19 when when she was like whatever yeah Yeah. and and yeah i mean we can get into this when we really crack in but so much mm. so much to say just from the first app yeah. and especially at that point of 100 percent, there's things that i get from this rewatch now that would not even have been on my mm. radar then which in some ways is you know cool or whatever like you learn and you grow and you have a different look but definitely because some of that stuff i just wasn't even yeah aware wasn't an issue yeah, wasn't a it, thing and it's super weird now yeah. yeah so um i guess just we should say how we're gonna do this we're gonna watch 
an episode and then we will choose kind of a feminist question to view that episode through and we're going to alternate choosing those. And when it is a double episode or a triple episode, we will do that in one podcast episode rather than splitting the ep across multiple storylines or whatever. So do you want to tell us about our first episode, which is Rose from season one? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, so New Who season one, Mm -hmm. um, episode one, Rose. And we are kicking things off with the ninth Doctor. In the first episode, ordinary shop worker Rose Tyler meets a mysterious stranger called the Doctor, and she is drawn into his strange and dangerous world. Her life will never be the same again. Mm. So the first thing we wanted to do at the start of every episode is just the very basic question of, does this episode pass the Bechdel test? So for those who are unfamiliar, this test comes down to three questions. Are there at least two named female characters? Do they speak to each other? And three, do they speak to each other about something that is not a male love interest? So, so, does this episode pass the test? So I'd say yes, yep. it does. Um, not necessarily in a great way, <laughs> but it's well counted as a pass. Yeah. So particularly the, those chats between uh, Rose and her mum mm-hmm. about the explosion at um, the department store and yep. then Rose's job prospects and stuff and some choice lines yes. from Jackie. Yeah, Jackie is uh, more <laughs> problematic than I remember her being. <laughs> like, by a factor of about a thousand. She's not giving anything in this episode apart from being problematic. <laughs> no. <laughs> no... oh, she's oh, good value, right? Yeah. It's definitely something to, to keep a look at. So, you know, good good first start that yeah. we've got a tick on the test. Yeah. <laughs> so I think for this episode, I really wanted to talk about liking pink and kind of the performance of womanhood because I'm going to be straight up honest I was never a fan of Rose I remember this from when I first watched the series everyone was really into Rose and Tennant and getting together and stuff and I was just like why like Rose is so annoying and when I watched this episode and the our first introduction of Rose is her in her bedroom right which is violently pink and very teen girl and then she spends the whole episode in this pink top I genuinely think the reason I don't like Rose is because of that initial first image because even though I was like definitely a feminist and I was raised by a feminist mom and so I've always thought of myself as feminist, I do think there was a part of me that was maybe a bit like not like other girlsy. So mm. the idea of someone liking pink and being like traditionally feminine would have been like, mm. I'm not into it, you know? So I think perhaps my dislike of Rose came from a little bit of internalized misogyny. So I wanted to talk about that today and this idea of, of pinkness, right? So I thought about, the first thing I thought about it was Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist. I don't know if you've read that. No, I haven't. I've heard of Roxane Gay. Yeah. Um, but no, I've not read Bad Feminist. No. So she did this collection of essays and basically talking about how she, her journey of embracing the word feminist because so many things that feminists were supposedly like mm. was not something that she associated with. You know, this idea of a feminist being a man-hater and like kind of masculine, right? Yeah. And she has this line about liking pink. And her journey to... To resolving that, and she talks about, I'm full of contradictions, I am a bad feminist, but I'd rather be a bad feminist than not a feminist at all. And I thought about how, I think it's very much a second wave feminism thing, like this rejection of kind of feminine things, and how that's problematic, right? Because why shouldn't you like things that are feminine because it's not the feminine that's necessarily negative? You shouldn't have to reject the feminine to have value. Oh, and if anything, I think it's um shunning one binary for another Mm. rather than being like oh girls like pink boys don't like pink it's like no girls don't like pink and it's like well where's the nuance like where's this opportunity for for spectra in everything right Mm. yeah no and exactly what you're saying then about that uh roxanne gay's thoughts in bad feminist reminds me really strongly of the guilty feminist which was probably my like first introduction into podcasts at all like Mm. you know back in i don't know 2018 maybe and then recently i've been reading deborah Frances White. Oh, yeah. Um, the woman who came up with that podcast, her book that was the spin-off of that show. And yeah, it's that whole idea of like feeling this guilt because you're not doing feminism like the, the right, right way. way. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's a lot of reasons why we're feeling that guilt, right? Because we feel like, you know, to absorb any label, you have to be the perfect epitome of it. Like yeah. in the past, I've called myself a banned vegetarian because I choose to wear leather shoes for mm-hmm. the cost factor versus wearing synthetic shoes that... Yeah. wear out instantly and, Although... and you're like what well, there's no idea of a perfect vegetarian it's bullshit right like mm. which brings me to my next point this idea that the commodification of this stuff right mm-hmm. so when you talk about being the perfect vegetarian and not wearing leather shoes a fun thing i really dislike is when you see things advertised as vegan leather because mm. i it's just plastic 
No, it's plastic, 100%. And then I get annoyed because it's marked up. So there's this like green tax that's put onto these things that are environmental, yeah. which is unnecessary. It would have just been plastic and cheap in the past, right? Yeah. And then you see this with, with, I think, with feminism in the era of Beyonce and Miley and everyone sort of embracing that kind of trendy feminism now you can buy a pink phone case with feminism written on the back of it yeah and like my instinct is shy away from that but (laughs) why because if it's bringing people to the feminist cause Mm. isn't it still worthwhile yeah no 100 percent. i think that's it's really true and and i think that visceral instant reaction Mm. like you said you had to rose being not just in a super pink bedroom and super pink clothes her her whole person physically and also the environment she's in with her mum. Mm. There's a pink, they've got a pink sofa. Her mum's in that pink, pink dressing gown, yeah. like satin dressing gown. And, you know, they've both got straightened bleach blonde hair. Mm. You know, the makeup that's, it's that very like girl next door, makeup but no makeup, yeah. nice earrings, yeah. like, but wearing jeans. So she's like approachable and casual. She's the girl that all the boys want. Yeah, like, yeah. That kind pick of vibe. me girl energy, yeah, you know? literally, pick me girl energy. <laughs> And the fact that our reaction is like, uh, uh, to like the pink yeah. phone case, the pink stuff is because we have this internalized, just like you said, this internalized misogyny. Oh, I should shun the thing that is like the girly thing. Yeah. And that's like problematic in itself, right? Because if the femininity is viewed as bad or inferior, then you just end up perpetuating. So you perpetuate the, the harm and you perpetuate the misogyny by trying to escape it. So you're like, I don't want to buy into all this female stuff because, you know, it's it's reinforcing gender roles and women shouldn't have to do that to have mm. value. So I'm going to reject pink. I'm going to reject softness. I'm going to reject all these things. But by doing that, you're saying there's something inherently wrong with it, which reinforces the male stereotype. Like you have to be masculine in order yeah. to have power. So by performing that power, you're just perpetuating it and then no one wins. Yeah, absolutely. You shouldn't have to, to validate yourself through a male lens. And I think it's interesting that we've seen this sort of move to the reclamation of pink throughout the years. So if we think about back in 2015, millennial pink became a thing and it was everywhere, right? Yeah. But a big part of that was trying to make a genderless. Brands were trying to appeal to men as well by, you know, you can wear pink too. It's not like an aggressive pink. It's this kind of like pale, salmon-y pink. And I think we've moved past that phase maybe when mm. I was like a bit younger, maybe that like mid noughties kind of time where if a guy wore pink, it was like almost political. Like yeah. it'd be like, ooh, you're wearing pink. And then, you know. Yeah. So I didn't yeah. really know. It was I was researching this episode and I came across this kind of politicization of pink right through the kind of queer culture and particularly for, for gay men, like this reclamation of pink because of its use with, I don't want to talk about Nazis in our first episode, but here we, are, we go. We're 10 minutes in and here's the Nazis. <laughs> Yeah, so you know this idea that that the pink triangle is being Mm -hmm. used in concentration camps to identify gay men and how they, through the queer lib movement in the 70s and 80s, reclaimed that, right? And so we've kind of replaced that now with the rainbow flag. It's sort of taken the place of what that pink triangle would have meant. But it is a political color, right? In Mm -hmm. that sense, it becomes political. And it's weird how there's this rejection of pink on multiple levels, but at the same time, it has this, this other meaning, this subversive meaning that maybe people aren't aware of. And this, the fact that we're having this entire discussion, I think is fant- like fascinating because mm. it's something as arbitrary as a colour. Yeah. Right. And like similar to you, I was looking at the kind of history of pink mm. and right up, you know, like 19th century through to like early 20th century up until about the 1920s. I'm sure mm. you came across this in your readings too, but that pink was really associated as a masculine mm. colour because it was like a light red and red mm. was like the super masculine strong colour whereas blue was thought of as especially like those lighter blues was sort of as like feminine and girly and then yeah and it started changing around this 20s but I particularly read that in the 1950s the first lady of Eisenhower's oh, wife okay, yeah. president of America Dwight Eisenhower she wore I think to his inauguration a massive poofy pink rhinestoned dress wow which was like totally different it was like 1953 right okay if that is the wrong date (laughs) but i'm confident that's 1953 and yeah it was like you know post-war years like people were used to having much more stiff fashions because of availability issues with with fabric and you know all different things but she just came out there like straight out the gate this massive poofy pink ball gown and then (laughs) they you know that was became you know like this fashion icon at the time Mm. and really kicked off and so by the time we were born in the you know late 80s, mm. pink is firmly established as yeah. the girl colour. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other famous uses, like instances of a pink outfits. I can only think of Jackie Onassis and her, you know, 
Jackie Kennedy. She was in yeah. that pink outfit. I can't think of anything else. But there must be like iconic moments where people were wearing pink. Is Marilyn no. Monroe in a pink dress at one point? Maybe. I, I think pink for me is my childhood. I just think of like princesses mm. and My Little Pony. Barbie. And Barbie, yeah. Yeah. And that was... It's not like I wasn't into it, but I wasn't like super into it either. I think mm. I definitely wasn't asking for pink things. But if I got a pink thing, I didn't hate it. I was just kind of like pink ambivalent. Yeah. And then as I got to be a kind of precocious teenager, I definitely <laughs> remember being like, colors are so arbitrary. Why should g- colors be gendered? Like, yeah. I, yeah. Yeah. And then that's when my mum said, I remember talking to her about it at the time. And she was like, oh, you know, when you and your brother were born, I didn't know your gender before you were born. I mean... Nobody knows anyone's gender. We know this now. But, you know, I didn't know your sex when you were born. Yeah. Um, so she deliberately bought or made baby clothes in, like, mm. green and purple and yellow and you know, more neutral colours because you don't yeah. know and you don't want to... But still, there's that idea of not necessarily wanting to dress a baby boy in pink. Yeah. And, That's yeah. so interesting because my mum, I think she did... They did know that I was going to be a girl. But she actively... I had a green nursery and she dressed me in yellow. And often, you know she wouldn't choose blue or pink to dress me in. She never dressed me in like gendered colors. And I, she never really bought me pink things and I never really liked pink growing up. I never really wore pink things. Even today, I don't have any pink clothes. You know, my mum was also, she's very much taught me that clothes don't have a gender. So you can wear whatever clothes you want, which I realize is very privileged as a woman to Mm. say that because it's a lot easier for me to wear male clothes, which I do and not face any kind of, repercussions for it other than making the men in the office very uncomfortable but you know if I have the same jacket as them that's their fragile masculinity that they have to deal with so that is a position of privilege which is why I think it's a second wave feminism thing this Mm. rejection of the feminine right and I've just internalized that being raised by a second wave feminist so you know she rejected this kind of outward femininity so therefore I emulated that feminism myself yeah and it does feel trite it does feel like patronizing when brands it's like it's pride month right now right so all the brands suddenly overnight changed all their logos to rainbow flags and you're like whoo get that rainbow coin so the pink feels very similar it's like i get very upset when i go to bunnings our local hardware store and see like tools and pink i'm like because why should a woman have to have pink tools why can't you just use normal tools but on the normal not saying pink's not normal but on the flip side why should a guy not have pink tools if that's what he wants? That's not the way it's pitched. 100%. I saw um, in one of the articles I was reading, they were referencing like pink and pink's movements in art. And mm. um, there were some photos of a girl, I think somebody studied, we can put this in the show notes, the actual sources rather mm. than being, me being like, I think. <laughs> um, and it was young girls in the American South with firearms. Mm. And this girl was like wearing, you know, kind of, like pretty top and skirt, nine, ten year old girl outfit and holding a, a pink rifle. Oh, yeah. And it's like that juxtaposition of like it is a pink firearm. Yeah. Is, yeah, because you've got yeah. the feminine, the pink versus the, the masculine, which is the, the shooting and the mm-hmm. fighting. But, you know, you can see that brands being like girls can have guns, too. Yeah. But it's pink. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I was researching this, I came across an essay about or a journal article about the pink truck and how motor vehicle companies in the 80s were sort of pitching towards women because they realized, as a lot of marketers now know, I am a marketer myself, that women have the spending power in the family unit. So if you are trying to actually get that consumer money, you need to appeal to women. So in the 80s, they started trying to like market to women to buy trucks and to buy cars. And so there's this idea that we'll just do a pink truck or a woman in a like a, a nice dress looking at this this car. And like so you have this really feminine aspect. And how that didn't actually work there were all these quotes from people being like women don't want pink truck ads or we learned a lot from that ad including not to use pink anymore which is interesting because then it demonizes the color and the color is not the problem it's the lack of thought that goes into the actual Mm. ad it's so basic right it's the same as the rainbow you can't just slap a rainbow on something and expect the community to to buy it it's It's, so disrespectful no 100 exactly it is fundamentally just patronizing to be Mm. like oh you know if we just dress it up differently then you will be seduced by the yeah, pink and yeah. your womanly wiles will not be able to resist buying the pink thing. Pink. Yeah, I know, which seems like, you know, like I'm mm. being trite there, but it, that's the vibes it gives off. And yeah. if anything, that makes me like aggressively want to do the opposite. I agree. And that's, that's exactly, I had another quote here from Carol McQuinn, which she said on um, BBC Radio 4 in 2005, where she said, personally, I find it patronizing. If the mobile phone only came in pink and it was the best mobile phone ar- around, I'd still tr- struggle to carry it around with me. 
And I find that so fascinating that they were having this conversation in the 80s and now they were having that conversation in the late 2000s because yeah. of this kind of like pop feminism, make it pink, put a feminism sticker on it and off we go. But people aren't really buying into the feminism thing, you know? Yeah. It's the commodification of it. Yeah, so I think in this bringing it back to 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 who mm. that is my main my main takeaways with with your your choice of pink and and performance of womanhood is just shockingly how strong that comes across with rose mm. with them being like she she loves pink she's living this kind of uh very if anything it's like overly trying to get her across as normal yeah normal girl normal, normal life, life. With a normal mom doing normal, normal things, this is it. And even the things her mom says to her too, which you you mentioned that you really hadn't picked up on that element of classism until this rewatch. Yeah. And I think that's something that we won't delve into deeply now because it will come up in other apps. Yeah. But yeah, like the way her mom talks to her about, oh, you know, it's probably good that that job's gone now because it was giving you airs and graces. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's about like, no, you're you're normal. Don't get above your station. This is very normal, normal, normal. And then the doctor comes in and things become very much not normal. Yeah. And I think there was a lot of class even in Mickey as well, which is something we'll pick up again later too, right? And it's interesting to me that you're right. There's this performance that Rose is very normal, very girly. You know, she's not threatening. She because mm. we have to remember that with who the companion is supposed to be the viewers in into yeah. the show, right? Yeah. Like there's this otherworldly situation that's happening and so you need to connect with the, the companion in order to get an in into it. It's a great opportunities for exposition as well. Yeah, yeah, of course, explaining <laughs> everything. But I think it's interesting that we've already seen, we see, there's a lot of not like other girls with Rose as well, right? She takes charge. Mickey tells her to not pursue this mystery, but she does it anyway and he has to go along because what if she gets murdered by this strange man yeah. and he sits in the car? She's the one who hits the fire alarm when there's an emergency, no one else reacts, but she does. Like, she's a take charge kind of girl, right? And then you have that image of Mickey clinging to her leg at the end, right? Like, he's literally clinging to her. And she's protecting him, which is a subversion of that sort of damsel in distress trope. Yeah, so I, but it comes across like maybe they're trying a bit hard mm. with it. That they're like, no, this is modern who. We're going to make the girl be the one who, you know, really comes into her power. Mickey's like, when they're, you know, facing the wrath of the evil plastic blob monster yeah. <laughs> um, and they're trying to get into the TARDIS and Mickey is pleading. He's like, let's go, let's leave the doctor, let's just run away. Mm. And it's it's Rose that, you know, has that moment of thinking like, no, actually using my extremely basic, apparently gymnastic skills, I will save the day. Yeah. But he he was all for, you know, running away in this. It's mm. not even, you know, there's no, there's no repercussions. I mean, apart from the fact she does leave him at the end, but there's no discussion of like, you know, you were just trying to flee, like you didn't help him, that kind of thing. She's just like, oh, I'll just take charge. And mm. yeah, it's it doesn't make Mickey attractive. It's no. totally cool to be scared. And it's like objectively terrifying shit that's happening. But like at the end when, you know, she has this cool opportunity and I mean, yes, maybe it's all the manifestation of a breakdown because <laughs> it's kind of mental that she's going away in this TARDIS, right? But strange. And he's like, no, 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 you can't go. Like, you have to stay. And then she, mm. she even says to the doctor, oh, I have to look after this stupid lump. Yeah, no, which is which, not kind. No, which is not kind and is like, yeah. Yeah. And But also then Mickey says that thing, you know, when she's thinking about it and he's like, he's an alien, he's a thing. He immediately mm. dehumanizes the doctor. And I think there's a lot of work that goes into this to make Mickey really unlikable. I think it's to make it not bad that Rose leaves him. Like, that she doesn't leave. Yeah. Like, she leaves him behind. And so we can't blame her for that decision. So they make Mickey really unlikable as a, mm. a counter to that. You know, we can't sully her reputation. Mm. So... Because they have to justify a woman choosing her own path because yeah. something objectively bad is happening, right? Yeah. Rather than just her being like, my relationship's great, but I want something new for me. Mm -hmm. It has to be, oh, I have permission to pick this adventure because yeah. I'm being treated badly or I'm being, you know, underestimated or... I'm not getting the respect I deserve. No, and so even therefore... her final exchange with him is... Mm -hmm thank you and he says what for and she says you know exactly yeah because it's thank you for nothing what what's he given her which maybe is a bit i mean we have a very small snapshot into their you know relationship but he was objectively looking out for her mm. you know like you said when she went to see clive mm. the internet weirdo clive yeah you know he was concerned like you're gonna be but you know it's funny how you can so easily make a joke of woman getting murdered by a random man yeah becomes this like ha 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 moment and then what actually happens is Mickey gets eaten by a bin yeah so who needed protection yeah exactly okay one point this is a side observation that bin thing 
<laughs> there's points in this episode where the CGI has not aged well. <laughs> but that's and, a classic who, isn't it? <laughs> no. Which I think is cool. I think that's cool, right? And so yeah. you have these moments of like him doing his best comedy, serious acting about trying not to get stuck to a bin and then getting swallowed by the bin that then burps. And then we have in those, you know, final like moment of peril moment with mm. the big scary I forgot what it's called, the consciousness thing, the big scary plastic blob thing. Yeah, I've forgotten too. Um, That's where you've got Christopher Eccleston doing his best proper serious drama acting at this extremely bad CGI plastic blob. And like he's given it Royal Shakespeare Company level, yeah. like, you will not take over, rah, rah, rah. And then we've just got like <laughs> Microsoft background circa 1995. <laughs> but then also the CGI with Rose, like on the, like when she's doing the gymnastics, I'm like, mm-mm. <laughs> no but yeah. you know whatever it is of its time exactly and I think part of it is like you said this kind of who's always been marginal mm. uh, like is in appealing to to that kind of queering of things you know liminal aspects and you know people that outsiders because typically and, yeah. being, being into sci-fi was more kind of not so mainstream all that stuff like mm. I think it's cool that it has this particular style of you know if it was high production value yeah uh, First of all, it wouldn't be a homemade British drama because they tend to keep it pretty low production yeah. value. And also, it, it's what it is. Like, it, that is part of its enjoyment, right? It's, it's part not, of its charm, yeah. And, and not taking itself too seriously. Yeah. Which I is, think. yeah, it's not It's not trying to be high art. It's, it's doing very well what it's trying to do, right? Yeah. Which is seeing a story about and others, basically, people mm-hmm. finding their own place in the world, finding their family. And so often with the companions as well, it's finding their own place and how they can be and how be how they can be themselves. Like the idea that you become bitter for knowing the Doctor and all of that. I think stuff. that's a cool journey that Rose goes through just in that episode. Mm. From being stereotypical, normal girl doing normal things, they're working class, living with a mum, just a job that's, you know, probably a bit intellectually beneath her. And then through the episode, she's like, okay, these weird things are happening, but she has this natural, like, burning curiosity. She's mm. not just going to pretend to ignore it or what you think is probably something that, like, her mum might do mm. is just, you know, be like, oh, that was weird and tr- happily go back to her day-to-day. Yeah. But she's pursuing that and then she comes on the internet and finds Clive, goes to see Clive, gets, you know, opened up into that world and then comes across the Doctor again and again and it's this movement from being very much in normal land doing normal things mm. to becoming on the you know on the margins on the the edges of what's considered normality and i think that's that's part of the querying process right it's like you're taking things and picking it outside what's normative everything and anything can be valid is Mm. valid everything's on these spectrums of experience yeah yeah it's from going from taking things at face value and taking the status quo that as it's Mm. presented to you and going actually there are other ways of existing there are other truths to be found this and it's also the representative of the viewer's journey right because we also come to it as normal people doing normal things going about our lives if this is your first encounter with who which for a lot of people it was with the regeneration of the show right so yeah you just like minding your business and everyday kind of life and then you go on this journey where you're like who is this person and what is this world and this Mm. is a whole other thing and it's bigger on the inside and yeah yeah, you go on that that trajectory and one thing that i just remembered that you i'm pretty sure you mentioned it maybe in your notes and i saw them but this juxtaposition between what rose is wearing and yes yeah 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 so i was thinking about the the link between the feminine feminine and the, uh, the masculine so this idea of pink being feminine then it automatically becomes anti-masculine which is why you know people who wear men especially who wear pink would often in western cultures we should say face derogatory comments or like be accused of being queer or whatever you know all these horrible things will be said to them because of the color that they're wearing because it is anti-masculine right so it's treated with contempt because it's not male i i wanted to think about with rose and pink and the doctor in Leather. So he's in a leather jacket, which you would argue is the most masculine of masculine. He's a Black very leather masculine jacket. man. He is. Also, can I just say that on this rewatch, I appreciated how hot he is. Also, how hot Rose Tyler is, like Billy Piper. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> um, so I think it's really interesting how the roles are immediately set up there. I looked at this thing, and there's a colour theory um, essay that I will share in the show notes, but they have a pilot survey in there where they ask people for their associations, if they think of pink, what are the most common associations? Mm. And you get femininity first, 76, 76% of people, yeah, yeah sure. would say it's feminine. But yep. the next one is romance, and then softness. Mm. And then there's like cheekiness, delicacy, gentleness. So very feminine <laughs> yeah. words, you know? But also how many people had just had knee-jerk negative reactions with them. 
Yeah, interesting. Maybe this is what they're trying to do with that is like show him as literally an alien coming in. He's in that strong, very taking control of the situation. You know, his first, our first encounter is him grabbing her hand Mm -hmm. and literally physically taking control of the situation. Mm -hmm. Um, And then through the episode, Rose does have a lot of opportunity and demonstrates a lot of agency. Like, you know, she's the one actively being, following him to be like, hey, what's going on? Like, Mm -hmm. tell me, tell me, tell me. And, And that goes from you know asking and then persisting and then threatening yeah and then through to kind of almost wheedling like there's a time when he picks her up at her house after the incident with the amazing acting with the plastic arm <laughs> um, that's a great moment then, <laughs> literally like they are it's the cheapest it's the cheapest way that you've ever done uh, you know in a assailant in a scene right they are acting with a plastic arm yeah. pretending it is attacking which faces. again you know good job Christopher Eccleston <laughs> yeah, like, that is some A plus acting um, but when they're walking away from her apartment building and she's really pestering him and he's mm. like no 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 no, I'm striding ahead and then that goes into her like being a bit threatening and you know saying oh, oh you know like I can't remember the phrase but there's a threatening vibe to mm. then hit her grabbing his arm and then almost kind of like wheedling to be like oh come on you're my friend like tell me yeah. so she's like really trying to get what she wants out of the situation. And so the, you know, it goes from him at the beginning being in charge and through to the end, she saves his life. Yeah, yeah. which is, I think, interesting as well because we should watch for that throughout the season as well. The doctor's not very good at asking for help, right? So he doesn't mm. want to admit that he needs help or wants to ask for help. So he's very dismissive of Rose at the start. He walks away and it's only when he's tracking down his clues that he ends up back at her house, right? Yeah. And still, he doesn't really ask her for anything. He doesn't think she can help. He mm. doesn't see any value in it. He is straight up patronizing at points. Yes, he is. In this pretty, episode. Yeah, and like downright rude sometimes yeah, too. Yeah, very rude. I don't know if we're yeah. supposed to. I, I can't remember if I read it like that at the time or if I just thought it was funny the first time. I, I, saw I it. think I probably just thought it was yeah. funny or. I found it quite abrasive. In this I, like, watch. really? I'm like, wow, you're being real, real mean. But then I try to remember he's got war trauma. <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. This is true. Yeah, you see kind of flashes of that. He is someone who. Hmm. has experienced you know he explains that to her right like when you've when you've seen all of this when you've been through all of this like this is what it's like to it's also to to feel the earth moving don't want but i do think it's still it can you can still be patronizing in that sentence as well like in in that sense rather not sentence but you know when you're like once you've lived as long as i have you'll understand oh once you get to my age you'll understand mom i used to have a manager many jobs ago they Sharon, don't 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 at me. Um, and she, I was like twenty, I don't know, twenty four at the time. Got a job. She was my manager. I was a team leader. She would repeatedly tell me that she had pairs of socks older than me. Oh no! And it's that vibe, right, of trying to be like, oh, you know, when you have the benefit of my experience, yeah, then you will understand. And so there, are, there's aspects of that, I think. But then he, very by the end, he obviously is aware of her value, right? But it has to go to the point where she saves his life, that, that he then yeah. sees her. Like, I do feel like that is an experience. I'm not saying it doesn't happen to men, but I think it's more common to women to be told, you know, once you're older or like that kind of to be put down because you're young. Mm, yeah, I've had that. Like in my in workplace experience, yeah. I, I have witnessed it happening to a lot, to women way more than I've ever seen it happen to men. Oh, 100%. Yeah, definitely. In my personal experience and my observed experience of others. Mm. I know. And, and and yeah, that's I mean, this is our teenage experience, right? It was growing up with this media. This was our milieu. And we've both said we didn't get this on the first take. We don't remember. Yeah. So this is how we end up with so much internalized stuff. And this is what we're absorbing as, as teens. And mm. I mean, we're probably getting past like key formative, formative years. You know, I was what? 16, 17, you were probably 17, 18. Yeah. Well, actually, no, but you didn't see it until you were a lot older. Yeah, I would have been like 18, 19, though. Yeah, so. okay, not that much older, yeah. So it, it all adds to it. It all adds to what's going on and how you see stuff, how you see pink, how you yeah. see womanhood, how you see the damsel in distress. Even, and, I mean, even the doctor, he's quite saviory. Mm. He's quite white saviory. Yeah, but just for all of humanity. <laughs> yeah, which is, like, cool, but... <laughs> And he's not wrong (laughs) either. Humanity doesn't know of the plastic peril that is, you know, coming to get them. Look, humanity needs a lot of help. We can all admit that. (laughs) We're not making good choices as a species. (laughs) I mean, then and now. Then and now. Where is the doctor? Oh, yeah. We're just letting this pandemic unfold, aren't you? Climate emergencies, that's fine. Yeah. 
It's also interesting to me if we think about, you know, we talk about how far our feminism has come even in the last, what, 10 years, 20, well, how long has it been? 14 17. Years? 17. <laughs> I can't do math. 17 years, right? And then you think about younger people than us, like younger feminists now and how different their experience is of it. So maybe this kind of idea that we will view like a pink mm. feminist phone case as patronizing you know, they're kind of growing up in a post-feminist world. So they're like, maybe they there's some people who are like, oh, we don't need feminism anymore. And we've certainly heard from people like this being like, I don't need feminism because I'm not oppressed. And like, okay, but you're a, a white girl living in a very wealthy suburb in Auckland, right? So maybe you don't need feminism, but the struggle continues. Check your privilege. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, this is it. I don't know. And I literally don't know anybody younger than us, personally, like, closely, um, because mm. don't have that many friends and proud. But maybe <laughs> at some point we try and, like, hopefully somebody will be interested we enough to reach out to in. us. Yeah, yeah, maybe some a nice, a fresh Gen Zer who does or doesn't like who, but has an opinion on it, mm. to see what they think. Like, maybe is it just dated and weird? Is it just fun in a kitschy way? Yeah. You know, is it, like cutely vintage it's interesting because we certainly i've noticed online just through the new casting announcement because obviously she mm. has a massive fan massive following because of sex education oh my god and i love it now they've cast yes as well from heartstop yeah which we love which seems like maybe not a season but just the special when yeah. they're like bringing back their faves but she's also been cast as rose is the yeah. character's name so it's so it'll be interesting to see where they go with that but obviously younger fans coming into it and I've seen a lot of people being like oh well I'm gonna have to figure out what Doctor Who is now because of this so the idea that they're going back and watching the older episodes of the older seasons of New Who and if any of you have happened to find this podcast then please do reach out to us because we would love to know what you think because we are millennials and proud and I'm still (laughs) wearing skinny jeans I'm wearing them right now You will pry them from my cold dead hands. I recently discovered what chuggy means, and I'm definitely chuggy. <laughs> oh, dear. The other day when you messaged me being like, what's mid? And I was like, okay, boomer. Oh, oh dear. That's oh okay. God. I, I mean, wish this was a bit. It's not a bit. It is the truth. <laughs> the only reason I know is because my job is extremely online. Yeah. And I think the cynical take of that is extremely you know smart casting decisions Mm. because they want to keep it fresh keep it going they're 17 years in right with basically no breaks it's been continuous Mm. so you know they're potentially aging out of the people who got into it back in 2005 and who Mm. are now married have kids have other interests so they're like no we've got to keep appealing to the we need to refresh the which of course upsets the older fans the ones who've been around since the oldie days who didn't like the 2005 reinvention and don't like this reinvention didn't like Jodie Whittaker being cast you know lots of issues along the way because the good old days which were only good for you yeah it's fine when Um, the doctor was a man black and white no um (laughs) Yeah, so it's this idea that, you know, I'm experiencing this right now, like I was complaining to you before about the Mike Chemical Romance fans, yeah. because I was a massive emo when I was 19 and watching the show and really into My Chemical Romance, and now I'm witnessing 19-year-olds on Twitter talking about My Chemical Romance, and I'm just having cognitive dissonance because of it, which is the same thing that these Doctor Who fans are experiencing, right? Because yeah. like they're like, this is a show that I loved 17 years ago, and now these kids are coming in, and they don't understand the history, mm-hmm. and ugh. The fandom struggle is ancient and forever. It is. And I think it will be interesting to see how it goes with this new season and how different it is. We've got got Russell T Davies Mm -hmm. back on board. So Mm. we'll see what direction that takes. And Which I wasn't that keen on, to be honest, because it felt like a regression. It felt like going Mm. back. Like, I don't think we should look back. You should keep moving forwards. But then... I guess they were just like, well, he saved it once before, so he no, can save true. it again. Um, and he does have a particular writing style, obviously, mm-hmm. and, and that's shaped those early seasons of, of New Who. And, uh, yeah, I mean, maybe from, from the queer perspective, you know, he is an older gay mm-hmm. man. And so he has a particular perspective, like everybody does, right? Yeah. And so he's bringing that. Shuji Gatwa is young. He's like what late 20s which surprised me i thought he was younger 28 or 29 yeah and so he's you know young he's definitely a lot younger than jodie whittaker so Mm. it'll be interesting to see how that much older chief writer younger lead Mm. and how that kind of connects across the generations and ultimately what we end up with yeah 
and what the relationship with the companion is like as well. Because I think if we think about Rose and you know, we'll work through this as we work through the seasons, but you know, she does become a bit of a romantic lead, right? To to ten. And the expectation there's always an expectation about romance with the doctor as well. And like, you know, I mm. always struggle with that. I always struggle with romantic storylines. So how does that shift and like it seems like fans don't like it when there's too many companions or if there's like a male companion. Why has there never been like a a long term only a male companion? It's always a woman, right? So yeah. what's the deal? What's going on there? So just yeah. something for us. That I'm sure we'll explore. A hundred percent. And and another of my quick random observations. Mm. I did not remember the level of frisson between <laughs> the Doctor and Rose. Mm. They spend a inordinate amount of the episode holding hands. Yeah. For you know, when they're running to heat is very slow when realizing the significance of the London Eye. And then they're running to it and they're running across the bridge holding hands for like literally no actual reason, apart from it looking like they're like massive chums <laughs> on an adventure. <laughs> And yeah, like lots of lingering looks, like standing way too close to mm. each other, personal space violations. Yeah, I don't, I never really, maybe that was just part of me being like, yes, it's a man and a woman. They must be romantic, was probably my interpretation yeah, first classic. time around. Yeah, and so now I was like, oh. Because like, there is also an age <sighs> thing going on. Yeah. Like, oh, obviously, Billy Piper is young. Yeah. We haven't even talked about the Billy Piper casting. Yeah, I remember controversial at the it time. It was, because she, for... Anybody who didn't, you know, grow up in England in the 90s. She came out with Honey to the Bee, a very mm. popular song. I want to say 98. And she right. was like 13 years old or something. She was extremely young and it was super popular. And she made a couple albums and then she kind of mm. drifted out of currency. <laughs> she married age 18, a gingerhead Chris. presenter, Chris Evans. Not that Chris Evans. No, DJ Chris Evans. <laughs> a different Chris Evans. And got a lot of very weird very targeted media coverage yeah. for that young marriage, for being, you know, that kind of pop starriness. And mm. then this move into acting, and there was a lot of like, ugh. But it turns out she's a fucking amazing actress. Yeah. So. Yeah, and definitely a lot of, you know, misogynistic coverage. Yeah. Definitely, uh, yeah. Just the classic kind of demoralizing and demeaning teenagers, firstly, and what teenagers like, and just being like they don't have any value. And then because she was girly and she was all these things, also mm-hmm. automatically dismissing that right as well, being yeah. like she's always going to be useless because of these obvious reasons. Again, just demeaning something because it is feminine. Yeah, so I guess for me, going through this journey internally in my head about pink and like my own internalized misogyny about why I didn't like Rose, and I, I would definitely like to keep unpicking that as this goes, it just really reinforced that idea that, you know, you can't mock people for liking traditional feminine things like if someone likes pink that doesn't mean they're not a feminist if someone likes makeup it doesn't mean they're not you know they're not a feminist these things can exist and you know all of us are just trying to find their place in our in this world and this world is structurally rigged against women it's rigged against so many of us and if we're just doing what we can to get by you know we have to give people the opportunity to learn and grow as feminists and we as feminists also have to keep learning and growing because you know, I considered myself a feminist back in 2005 when I watched this, but I've clearly come a very long way since then. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's uh, probably a cool tenant to kind of hold in our our heads as we move through these episodes of that, that idea of you can be many, you can, you know, express multitudes yeah. in, in who you are and what you like and what you want and, you know, taking that as a theme through as we meet new characters and we explore mm. new storylines and... The TARDIS is maybe a really interesting example of that existing through time and space. Yeah. Being bound to no particular location or yeah. time. And yeah, I think it's it's something that I yeah, in my own life I'm really excited to kind of have as a general concept of, you know, I can do whatever the hell I want to and yeah. I can be whoever I want to. And I really, it's really exciting as well, I think, for like younger generations mm. who are sounding like an old woman, um, <laughs> but who I hope grow up with this, yeah. not as something that they come to learn, but yes. they just grow up with as the fabric of their existence to, is to be like, I can be what I want. Like It's so great. And I think, I just really hope they realize how lucky it is because we've spoken about that before as well, mm. how lucky the younger generations are to have media that reflects diversity, that mm. reflects different options. Like, you know, I would have been way further along on my journey if I had known that there were options and things but I didn't because I grew up in quite a conservative environment and so there are a lot of things about myself that I just didn't learn until way later and 
concepts that I didn't realize were a thing that makes me feel like I belong in a place that I never belonged to before. So that's a really cool thing. And kids have that straight out of the gate, which is amazing. Yeah. Which is what everyone should have. And also the TARDIS, I like that because, you know, it changes to reflect its owner as well. So when the Doctor regenerates, it changes what it looks like, which is really interesting about how, you know, we're all malleable and we're all constantly in flux, which is right. Mm -hmm. Even the nature of the Doctor himself, you know, great, great, very passing moment in this episode. He catches himself in the mirror in Rose's flat Mm. and it's like, oh, not too bad. Yeah. (laughs) Because he's just like the implication, you know, he's only recently transformed. Regenerated. Regenerated. Sorry. Mm. I did know that. Um, yeah, and so to him, it's like, cool. Like, he has, you know, quite uh, an ambivalent attachment to his mm. outside, the flesh vessel. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it's something that, that it's is in flux with him, absolutely, mm. yeah. And that's really cool thought. Yeah. Cool. Um, so I think we should end on a positive note, regardless. I'm sure there will be episodes that we absolutely hate. So we should always end on a positive thing where we talk about something that stood out to us from the episode. So did you have a standout moment that you I loved? do. Great. Um, and I was very interested to see if we would come up with the same standout moment. We did not. Great. So mine is the music and the intro. Cool. So the instant that um, you lent me your DVD, because <laughs> yeah. those first seasons are not on any streamers, I'll tell you it's a, quite a hassle. <laughs> the Yeah, the second I put it on and that music started and you've got the like, woo, timey-wimey kind of like wormhole yeah. thing and the TARDIS and then like those particular graphics of the cast and instantly I was like back in you know the yeah. mid 2000s waiting to you know, looking forward to the episode each week sitting down with my mom and my mm. brother and like watching it together and it's amazing how it just made me feel like oh I'm excited and like yeah it's like nostalgia like nostalgia mm. to to remember something that I'd enjoyed so much and and how music and those images kind of like brought that all back for me in an instant yeah uh, so, in turn, did you have a standout moment? So, one of my favourite moments, and my standout moments will probably almost always be dialogue. I'm a very dialogue-driven person. But there's this moment where, you know, Rose says to the Doctor, if you're an alien, how come you sound like you're from the North? And he says, lots of planets are the North. And I've always really loved this line because it's just... I just love it because it's, like, an obvious thing. It's like, why do you assume that an alien planet wouldn't have a north of course planets have a north or why do you assume that because i sound this way they must they, you're making assumptions about me because yep. of my accent and my language right and christopher eccleston in a, an interview made the comment that you know people think the doctor is a scientist and an intellectual and therefore you can't be that if you don't speak with like a received pronunciation right like if you're northern then you cannot be these things mm. so it's really cool to see that and because i had noticed the classism element yep. in this episode already this was another kind of reinforcement of it yeah 100 percent. with um him i'm pretty sure that's his natural accent yes, right yeah. he's from the north yeah. yeah so uh yeah with him not not having to to change that not having to mm. to get rid of that at all and and then rose i'm pretty sure billy piper's accent is not quite that london mm, um sure. or at least maybe more recently she has changed it i know she's quite talented at, mm. so um maybe that i've just seen her and stuff where she's flattened out a bit more but yeah it's like we've got our two main characters who are very regional in their accents very not like you Working say that class that right? rp yeah, yeah absolutely and and well but this all we can pick this accent up thing later with 10th doctor and david Tennant, and mm. the fact that he is not scottish i know which is a true tragedy <laughs> for everyone involved yeah and so they made the decision not to well we'll see what happens with shooty shooty has the most interesting accent yes. in real life mm. we'll see yeah we'll see how they go with that as well when they ask him to to yeah, make that a neutral yeah or intriguing yeah um yeah awesome okay yeah perfect standout moment i think there, there's a lot of really cool dialogue moments in this episode yeah. i think the writing is really good around that like mainly coming from the doctor yeah good one-liners right yeah and he kind of he paints this picture like through that dialogue of being witty and smart but also not taking any prisoners yeah. like he would not uh tolerate a fool yeah unforgiving right yeah unforgiving yeah. for sure you know i've got a mission to do like, I need to get this done. It's yeah. far more important than any individual. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm going to have fun along the way. But, oh my God, I just remembered his response <laughs> when Jackie is trying to seduce him. I know. And like, because you think, she's like, oh, oh, hello. Oh, man, hello and, and my bitch. <laughs> and you think, like, in the first couple of sentences from Jackie that he's not getting it. Yeah. And then he very quickly is just like, no. <laughs> hey, he gets it. And he's not. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is... Like a kid's show, right? And yeah. I, I very much do believe in like children should be exposed 
as appropriate, but a lot is appropriate to like the mm. the fabric of humanity, right? And we shouldn't keep things from children. And but also, it's weird vibes. Kids it don't is... get that, right? No. So it's for the adults. Mm. I mean, Rose is getting up for work that she doesn't end up having to go to but yeah. it's meant to be early morning right her alarm's just gone over half a seven yeah her mum's in a dressing gown and still she's like oh hello what's she just gonna like jump straight yeah, and also, like, why do you... give us a second rose i'm just gonna make it a move on the doctor <laughs> like, where was i like, gonna she, go she has no context really around you know no. what he brings to the table but <laughs> she's is like he? he's a strange fan in my bedroom like okay which paints jackie as quite desperate right which oh. is also a very gendered issue that we will pick up <laughs> And then, yeah, and then her, like, affrontedness mm. when he turns her down as well is, like, an interesting take on it to for her yeah. to be like, oh, he should have, where you yeah. know, she could have just, like, me up sh- on my offer. shoot your shot and then be like, eh, didn't work out. Yeah. But no, she is so. very quite, like, affronted. Hmm. Well, that was fun. I did want to say that I feel like, as always, there could be a lot that we talk about. Mm-hmm. And this idea of, of coming in with a key theme. And then structuring our discussion around that and using that theme to kind of guide our interaction with the episode and and lead a conversation is a great way to do it because our aim is to keep these at about 45, I would reckon. And we're going over that today with our little intros and giving you a bit more flavor of why we're here and what Mm. we want to achieve with this project. But yeah, so we are by no means saying that we're giving an expansive view. So if you have ideas that you think we've missed, some key takes on an episode and especially in the way that we've approached it, you think, oh, we've missed a certain interpretation like a certain key yeah point, like, something very obvious that you would like us, us to know. focus on yeah, yeah absolutely and we do have a gmail it's a tardis of one's own at gmail.com but i will put all of that in the show notes for us so yeah please reach out to us let us know your thoughts and we are on twitter and instagram as well as a tardis of one's own all the links are in the show notes so yeah next week we'll be discussing episode two which is the end of the world yeah, and you can check out the show notes, as we said, for all the references from this episode, which might seem like a little bit of a homework assignment. But hey, if you're into <laughs> feminism, there's a lot of scholarship. So knowledge is power. Definitely. And yeah, please feel free to, like we say, engage with that. Like if we have missed, we are very much still learners, not scholars mm-hmm. in this space. So if we've uh, if we're quoting a particular source or a particular work by someone and you feel like really our take is not the accurate one, yeah, let us know. Like, it's cool. We are very much here for, for constructive yeah, yeah, yeah. criticism. We are, yeah, this is, you know, it's just something fun we do. We are definitely yeah. not getting peer reviewed. So if you want to <laughs> peer review us, please do. Cool. Okay, well, we'll catch up again next week. Looking forward to it. Yeah, thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye.